Well, good morning. I'm going to say something uh, right now that I hope doesn't offend anyone, but it's the only way that I can say it, so I'm just going to say it. So I'm going to go ahead and ask for your forgiveness. Let me just say it this way. Death sucks. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it does. And sometimes we, we pretend that it doesn't happen. We pretend that it's not hard. We pretend that it's easy. But the reality is, is that it really sucks bad. And the reality is, is that it is a symptom of an underlying disease. And the reality is that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, right around verse 26, Paul says that death is an enemy. And so to pretend otherwise is to be disingenuous. And to pretend otherwise is to be a flat-out liar. We spend so much of our time trying to avoid death. I, I think that so many parts of our medical professions is to fight against death, right? We get nipped and we get tucked and we get Botoxed and we get, uh, get stuff sucked out of us and stuff implanted in. Why? Because we're growing older. We're aging. And we're trying to, defe the, the, to, to defeat death. And I'm not saying those things are bad, but what I am saying is this. What we do regarding death reveals a level of discontent with the way things are, with the recognition that people are limited, that people will get old, that they will die. There is even now today a political or a philosophic and scientific movement called transhumanism. Has anybody heard of transhumanism or am I the only one? There is a movement now called transhumanism which uh, Nick Bostrom, who is on the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, he calls it an interdisciplinary approach to understanding and evaluating the opportunities for enhancing the human condition and the human organism opened up by the advancement of technology. Let me break that down for you. What he means is, what he means is that we can live forever because of machines, right? That is a fundamental recognition that something is wrong and we've got to fix it. Death is the enemy. And we've got to overcome it. To the point where in the same article written in 2003 or 2005, he says this vision in broad strokes is to create the opportunity to live much longer and healthier lives, to enhance our memory and other intellectual uh, faculties, to refine our emotional experiences and increase our subjective sense of well-being, and generally to achieve a greater degree of control over our own lives. Again, let me break that down for you. He wants to live forever. And this is a desire to uh, undo death. This is a recognition of what I said at the very beginning, that death sucks. Finally, transhumanism stresses the moral urgency of saving lives, or more precisely, of preventing involuntary deaths among people whose lives are worth living. I, we can applaud that. What we cannot applaud is this, Transhumanism, all of our medical abilities to delay death cannot cure the disease because death is only a symptom of the disease. The disease itself is sin. And I want those thoughts for us to frame our story from the gospel, this true account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Keep in mind that all of our world fights against death, recognizes that it is bad, attempts to undo it. But what we see in Scripture, what we find throughout the course of Scripture, is that it is only God, the Creator, who can give life, and it is only Jesus, the Savior, who can undo death. 
By the time Jesus showed up in the village of Bethany, Lazarus had been dead four days. Dead four days, Lazarus most likely died the very same day that messengers were sent out to find Jesus in order to bring Jesus back to his friend's sickbed. In the face of his friend's illness, though, Jesus did something that I think is kind of strange, and I would imagine that most people think is kind of strange, because in the face of his friend's illness, Jesus did nothing. He didn't do anything. He stayed where he was. Two days, in fact. Now, Jesus doing nothing is framed by these two thoughts. First, from verse 4 of John chapter 11, Jesus says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then, in verse 15, Jesus again says, For your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Jesus did not immediately respond to his friend's illness because through the illness and its conclusion, glory would be shown shown forth for the purpose of faith in Jesus, for the purpose of faith in the one who sent Jesus. This whole event of John chapter 11, we only read a portion of it this morning, but this whole event, the raising of Lazarus four days dead, is to reveal Jesus as the one who gives life, to reveal just how much we need Jesus to be alive. One of the most hauntingly beautiful bits of Scripture is found in Ezekiel chapter 37. And there the prophet says this, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. Set down into a poorly covered cemetery, Ezekiel can only see bones. He states in verse 2, Behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. Very many and very dry. The prophet Ezekiel here is painting a picture with words, and it is incredibly bleak, the picture that he's painting. As strange as this vision is, it gets even stranger because God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? Now, I can't tell you what was running through Ezekiel's mind when God asked that question. I can, however, tell you what would have been running through my mind when, if God had asked me that question. There's a really simple answer to God's question, isn't there? Can these bones live? The simplest answer is no. There is not a chance. These bones are dead, really and truly dead. They are beyond hope of life. Ezekiel can't do anything about their state of being. There's no wound that Ezekiel could bind up, no broken bone to set. CPR is out of the question. The AED is out of reach. But there was God. God who created all things was present. God who called all things into existence. God who gave life when there was no life. God's the one who asked the question, can these bones live? And it is God to whom Ezekiel returns the question, O Lord, you know. The bones which lay in the sun drying had no hope of life. They had no hope, period, except for the supernatural action of divine intervention. And so Ezekiel offers it back to God. And notice what God declares through the mouth of this prophet. 
Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and you and, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. God proposes to do exactly what he did at the moment of creation recorded in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. God proposes to breathe into the nostrils of these dead men the breath of life. God will give life. God will give his Holy Spirit. In a very few verses, God will explain to Ezekiel that this valley of dry bones, that this was the whole house of Israel, and that God would give them life. And again, God, speaking through the mouth of Ezekiel, says this, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and you shall know I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. God gives life, even when it is hopeless to find life. God gives it. When there is no hope of life, God can give life and will give life and does give life, abundant and true life. When Jesus arrived in the village of Bethany, Lazarus had been dead for four days. By any possible metric of measurement, Lazarus was dead and while it is true his decomposition and his desiccation were not yet to the point of the dry bones of Ezekiel chapter 37, Lazarus had no hope of life. According to Jewish Jesus follower David Stern, there was a known practice of checking dead bodies for the first three days of their passing. You know, 2,000 years ago, the medical arts had not risen to the level of 2017, how would people know if a loved one was dead or merely comatose if they didn't check the body? In fact, it was known, there was at least one account of them uh, a, a, of a man being buried alive uh, and, and waking up from his coma to survive and then go on and live 25 more years. So in an effort to ensure that they had buried someone who was really passed away, the body would be checked for three days to make sure it was death and not a coma that the loved one was experiencing. When Jesus arrived... It was the fourth day. According to Jewish tradition, the, the soul of a deceased person hung around its body, hoping to return for three days after death. On the fourth day, decomposition of the body had begun. The soul would depart, no longer being able to physically recognize its face. When Jesus proposed to roll away the stone of Lazarus' tomb, it was the fourth day. And so Lazarus, by the standards of Martha and Mary and those who mourned with him, Lazarus was as hopeless as the dry bones of Ezekiel's valley. For three days he had been checked and there is no hope of life. Three days now the soul had hovered but had now departed because it was the fourth. He had begun to smell of the stink of decay. This was no coma. His soul in their tradition had departed. Four days dead equals no hope. But there was Jesus. Martha and Mary and the mourners with them recognized Jesus to be a healer. They all think or they all believe that Jesus could have healed Lazarus of his illness. They think that Jesus could have prevented Lazarus from dying. They do not yet have the understanding or the concept in their mind that Jesus can undo death. 
What Jesus says and what Jesus does will profoundly affect those who witness because Jesus undoes death and he reveals glory. He gives life. He calls to faith. Listen again to the exchange between Jesus and Martha. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha reflects the belief in resurrection at that time. Not not widely held by all Jewish people, there was a vague belief in a a general resurrection of God's righteous people at the end of time, some far off removed distance. Passages found in such places as Daniel chapter 12, Hosea chapter 6, Hosea chapter 13, as well as in Psalms 16, 49, and 73 were understood uh, in this way, a general resurrection. But let's notice what Jesus says to this grieving sister. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus takes Martha's general and sort of ambiguous belief and personalizes it. He makes the connection for her. He Himself, Jesus, the person she's looking at, her friend, he is God's power over death. He is the one who can call life out of death. He is the one who can undo the effects of death. He is the one who will even destroy death itself. And her general hope in God and in God's power over death has become particularized in the person standing before her. In the incarnation, the internal Son of God takes upon flesh and there in flesh before Martha, before Mary, before those at the tomb. There is God's power over death in the person of Jesus. And it isn't that he's there just to offer some sort of vague, defined, righteous people resurrection. He's not just patting her on the head and saying, there, there, things will be better. Jesus says to her, I am resurrection. I am life. You can know resurrection, and you can know life. And Lazarus is fixing to know resurrection and life. Fixing too. That's so southern of me. Notice what Jesus says. To all who live, Jesus offers true life, true life here in the present. And even if you do die physically, if you are in Jesus, you will find true life. The answer to what transhumanists are seeking for, the answer to what we all are seeking as we attempt to battle death is found in Jesus. Scholar D.A. Carson writes this. In the Bible, death is an enemy, and it can be a fierce one. It is ugly. It destroys relationships. It is to be feared. It is repulsive. There's something odious about death. Never pretend otherwise. But death does not have the last word. Thank God for a Savior who could claim, I am the resurrection and the life. So Jesus goes to his friend's tomb, deeply moved, troubled, angry even, at death, which had invaded God's creation. Jesus goes to his friend's tomb, deeply moved and troubled, angry even, because he was and he is the giver of life. 
Jesus came into the world as the resurrection and the life in order to destroy death and behind death, the one who has power of death. And so Jesus goes to the tomb of his friend, deeply moved and troubled, ready for battle to kick down the doorway of death, ready to give life, to defeat death. Ultimately, Jesus, uh, his defeat of death will ultimately take Jesus to his cross, where the powers of sin and death and hell are poured out upon him. He dies, and yet what we see on the third day as Jesus emerges victorious from the tomb is that all those powers of sin and death and hell cannot claim him because he is resurrection and life. Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus as the only hope for a man who was lying beyond hope. And he goes to the tomb to give God glory and to bring people to faith. At the command of his master, at the call of the one who gives life, Lazarus, the man four days dead, got up and walked. Jesus gives life. Like the Lord God in Ezekiel chapter 37, Jesus in John 11 gives life to the hopelessly dead. This is what Jesus does because that is what God does. He gives life. He gives life to the hopelessly dead, even those hopelessly dead while they are alive. The transhumanist values that I began talking about earlier and all of our attempts to to slow down death reveal a level of discontent with the way things are. People are limited. They, they do get old. They die. And as physical death is mirrored by spiritual death, perhaps at the root of such philosophies is this. It's the, the struggle that is spiritual in nature. The two are connected, after all. The, the, we are immortal in body, mind, soul, and spirit. But to do what transhumanists want us to do to uh, live forever and escape, we must know Jesus. Because transhumanists, yes, they can download your consciousness, or they think they can, download your consciousness into a computer and upload you into the cloud where you can live forever as some sort of sentient being. You can attach to yourself different appendages. You can implant in your mind But what they cannot do is they cannot cure the disease. Death is only a symptom. They cannot deal with sin. It is sin that kills us. And that is why Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says this, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's no coincidence that Paul uses the image of death to describe the fallen human condition. In our natural selves, while we may have breath in our lungs, we are in reality dead with no hope of life. What Ezekiel saw in his vision and what Lazarus experienced in his body is true of us both physically and spiritually. We are dead men walking. We really are dead men walking, and like those bones scattered about the valley of Ezekiel's vision, like Lazarus in the tomb, we have no hope of life. No hope of life because in our sin, we cannot do and will not do what is necessary for life. We have no hope, but there is Jesus. And as we've seen throughout our passages for today, 
God gives life. He breathes upon the dead. He gives them life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus gives life. Again, from Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Notice with me, it is God who makes the dead alive. It is God who gives life. Through an act of unmerited favor, an act of grace, something that cannot be bought or earned, but only given and received, God makes the dead alive through Jesus. You can hear me for the last few minutes and ask, what's this guy's point? My only point is this, Jesus is the giver of life. This past Lent, we've, we've sort of walked through various aspects of, of Jesus' life. We started in the temptations. And as we begin Lent, I, I challenged us to see just how much we need Jesus. In the temptations and Jesus conquering over the serpent, what we saw there is that we need Jesus because he's the one who kills the serpent on our behalf. This next Sunday, we talked about Nicodemus from John chapter 3 and the point is that we need Jesus because he is the one who gives new birth. Then we went to John chapter 4 and we saw Jesus interact with the Samaritan woman at the well and we saw that Jesus is the one who gives living water. Last week we saw John chapter 9, Jesus being the one who makes the blind to see and today we see this, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus gives life to the hopelessly dead. Those of us dying physically who are already dead spiritually need Jesus to be made alive. The call here from John 11 is to be made alive and point towards Jesus then who gives life. That is what a church full of people who were dead and now alive in Jesus does. It points toward Jesus. Folks, it isn't just us who need Jesus. It is the world that is dying that needs Jesus. It isn't just us who need Jesus who is the light of the world. It is the world that rests in darkness that needs the light of the world. It isn't just us who need the drink of living water. It is the world that is parched for water that needs Jesus. It isn't just us that needs Jesus to give us new birth from above, but it is the world that needs to be born again that needs Jesus. It isn't just us that needs Jesus to crush the head of the serpent. It is the world who is under the sway of the serpent that needs Jesus. It is the church that blesses people for the express purpose of leading them to believe in Jesus, the resurrection and the life, and to belong to Jesus' body. That's the church that proclaims all of these things to the world around it. This is what a church with a culture of evangelism and invitation does. It calls those who are dead to come alive in Jesus, to receive the life that only Jesus can give. Having been made alive, are we content to leave our family, friends, and neighbors in death? Having been made to see, are we content to leave our family, friends, and neighbors blind? Having received living water to drink, are we content to watch our family, friends, and neighbors dry up and die? Having been born again from above, are we content to watch our family, friends, and neighbors struggle forward in old life? Jesus is the answer. 
Jesus is the one who gives life. That's the only thing that we really have worth saying. And I just said that for a really long time. <laughs> Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus gives life to the hopelessly dead. That's you and that's me and that's the world around us. But Jesus gives life. I've said this to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Holy and gracious.